1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's
0: plushcare.com slash weightloss. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.
1: Hey everyone. The album, Wobegon, music from the podcast season one, is out now. 18 songs from the first season, remixed, remastered, reimagined. You can get it for $5 at wobegonepod.bandcamp.com, or for free if you're a $5 a month patron. That's over at patreon.com slash where you can also get early access to episodes, instrumentals, and more. Speaking of patrons, thanks to Risky Coffee, Plumiel, Edith Wharton, Cooper Dukes, Jason Lee, Mira, Austin Sleeper, Ashley Moo, Justin Clavett, Shannon M., Harrison Minix, Matthew Robertson, Brennan Leiner, Jenny and Ciso, Elizabeth Kirkman, Paul S., Sophie, and Wei Ying for supporting the show. Enjoy. You know, I've gotten pretty lucky to have an audience that isn't interested in finding things that don't line up to them in a story that's still being told and saying, Oh, but in episode XX, you said this. That's a plot hole. That's a plot hole. Someone call CinemaSense. We've got a plot hole over here. You know that I know what I'm doing, and I have reasons to do all of the things that I do. It will all get sorted out in the end, or things will end abruptly and people will start saying, well, I really liked Wobegon, but I can't really recommend it because of how it ended. Oh, but you really liked it, though? That means so much to me, thank you so much. I bring this up because of something that I said at the beginning of episode 13, that I was being vague on purpose and that I didn't want Anne to come and find me. What does that mean? I kept saying Old Brush Valley over and over. There's even a song about it that I said was written in 1929. Can't you just type Old Brush Valley into Google Maps and see exactly where it is? Yeah, you can. But good luck making sense of it. It's a lot like Area 51, in that you can look at it on Google Maps, but you can't get a good sense of what's actually happening there. Old Brush Valley is huge, and you can't just walk in and see for yourself, even if you're a hard-scrabble journalist trying to locate your college friend for unspecified reasons. I got lost, and had to get directions from personnel when I showed up there. Turns out that I was in Old Brush Valley East, and not where I needed to be. I'm sure that the labyrinthine layout of the place does exactly what it was designed to do, which is to keep people from easily being able to just walk in. The history that I gave was true, at least as true as someone who read a Wikipedia article and summarized it on a podcast can be. I re-recorded the song Old Brush Valley by myself to try and get around any copyright issues and to make it something that I could share on the Patreon. And if you type Old Brush Valley into Google and start finding answers for yourself, then you know that Anne can as well. She's better equipped than anyone in the world for the task of discovering the hidden location of Mike Walters. She knows about the podcast and experienced her part of the story in real time, and she's a journalist. I assume that being a journalist means being good at that kind of thing, but I don't actually know. Cue the clip of me from season one saying that I was wrong to pretend to be a journalist. It's like the first thing that I said. I suppose if I really wanted the trail to run cold, I could have simply not done a second season of the podcast, but what's the fun in that? If a bear maims a man in the woods and there isn't anyone to hear about it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, uploads on Wednesdays, does it make a sound? I expected from the outset that every little piece of info would be scraped from my podcast episode in Anne's quest to find me. The tiniest detail could give everything away, so I made sure to word everything especially carefully. It was designed to tell the story while keeping me safe. I would never do something so careless as saying the name of a well-meaning but enigmatic security guard from North Dakota over and over again. Like Hunter Hunter Jeremiah Hartley Hunter Jeremiah Hartley Hunter Jeremiah Hartley Hunter Jeremiah Hartley has a public Facebook page where he posts all the time about stuff that happens at over, pictures included. None of what we have access to out here is strictly classified. There are the cabins, but we're not allowed in them, so unless you're breaking the rules, you don't know any more about them than if you had just looked up an aerial view on Google Maps. Pictures of them on social media are permitted. This made it trivial for Anne to pinpoint where I was at over. No journalisting, is that, is that, journalisting? No journalisting required. This explains why I got a call on my cabin's landline phone at 9 a.m. on a brisk Sunday morning. It was one of the guards at the front gate. She called to let me know that there was a woman at the gate who wanted to meet with me and asked if I should let her in. I told her no, that I would come to the gate instead. This is Wobegon. Wobegon is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, so I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, and I'll tell you a story about a town called Old Brush Valley Energy and Resources Employee Residential Facilities Incorporated Zone. The story starts back at episode 1, so go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. I'm sure that there's some confusion regarding the structure of the game and how it pertains to the situation between me and Anne. That's because things got profoundly tangled up at the end of the first season, and I never got them successfully untangled. But I have no reason to believe that I'm no longer playing a game. Ryan made it clear to me that I was still playing when I met him, and the situation doesn't seem like it's changed from there. At some point I stopped playing a game and started being a hostage. Game is just the word that I have become accustomed to using to describe this hostage situation. The game did not stop, just because I relocated, and the events I am experiencing are different now. Anne still wants to complete the fourth challenge in order to progress. There are other players playing Wobegon, across various challenges and in myriad places. There could even be other people at Over playing the game that I haven't even met yet. This isn't just Mike's quirky nature adventures, this is Wobegon. I'm not going to do the joke where the intro song comes back in when I say that. I don't want to wear it out. As far as rules go, the game-runners have repeatedly refused to elucidate how they work vis-à-vis what I am now calling the Ann Paradox. Listening back to old episodes, I realize that I explain this way too many times. Since it's been a while, and since I can tell through analytics that some of you do not listen to the show in order, here it is. Anne's prize for the first Wobegon challenge was that I was brought back to life. The fourth challenge is to kill your prize. If you underperform relative to your other players, your Wobegon game ends and you lose your prize. If Anne loses, I die. If I don't let Anne kill me, then I'm... fine? No, of course, I die. I'm in a die-die scenario here. I had no direct confirmation that Anne was going to attempt to kill me at all. I was led to believe by the game runners that lots of people fail the game before they even get to this point. Some of them probably die trying to do the other challenges. Maybe Anne might drop out of the game. But she was at my house when she should have been in St. Louis the day that Ryan did his brain thing, the scornful part of my blur, something that she never addressed and I find immensely suspicious. She could have killed me in my bed that week, so at the very least she's conflicted about it. I can feel for her in some strange way. As a murderer myself, not to brag, I know how conflicted I was when I killed Matt. There is always the hope that there's some sort of big Control-Z waiting at the end of this, waiting to put everything in its right place. That's why I decided to meet with her when she showed up at the gate to Over. The other reason is that this has to come to a head sooner or later, and I'd rather the game runners not make that decision for me. I grabbed my gun, of course. Anne wasn't going to be making that choice for me either. It was the first time that I had carried my gun on me without feeling unease about having it. I might actually have to defend myself. Plus, it's not actually Chekhov's gun, it doesn't have to go off. We just had Chekhov's bear last episode. What are the odds of those things being so close to one another, huh? Waiting at the gate for me, Anne had a sunny disposition for someone who was possibly conspiring to murder her friend. It was all smiles. Still, I was just as smooth as I always am, which is incredibly. Anne, hi, what are you doing here? I said from the other side of the gate. I was in the neighborhood and thought I'd drop by, Anne said. You really didn't have to do that, I replied. Can you let me in? The security lady said that all guests must be accompanied inside by an employee. No, no, let me come to you, I said. There's a cute little diner right around the bin back there that I've been meaning to go to. And we can talk about what you've been up to for the last month. I needed to get her somewhere public, but not within earshot of over. She nodded, and I came out on the other side of the gate. We ordered breakfast. I know that I eat biscuits and gravy for breakfast nearly every day at over, but I love biscuits and gravy more than I love my own family. And if I were going to have a last meal, it was going to be biscuits and gravy. The gravy was too thin, but that's okay. I forgive them. "'You were surprisingly easy to find, Mike. "'Your co-workers seem really nice, though, "'at least from what I can tell on social media,' she said with a smirk. "'Too pure for this world, some of them,' I said. "'One of them.' "'Do you know why I came here today?' she asked. "'You can't kill me in front of all these people, "'and I'm not going anywhere alone with you,' I said. "'I haven't decided where I've landed on your fourth challenge yet, "'but I am going to decide for myself what the best course of action is. "'They issued me a gun, and I have it with me, Anne.' If you're going to wipe me off the map, I might as well take you out in the process. I've already died before, and I didn't much care for it. I am averse to doing so again. You've come to a place with the tightest security that I have ever seen. A place that employs me, and disappears people regularly. We're safer to discuss this stuff here, but I bet even here has a few over-personnel that would rip you to shreds if you tried anything funny. At least if I decide to pull the trigger, I won't have to worry about what comes next, You do, so what are you going to fucking do, Anne? I had worked myself up into quite the frothing rage over the course of my monologue. I didn't even know that was inside of me. Anne just smiled a demure smile. "'Why, Mike,' she said. "'You have me all wrong. "'Of course I didn't come here to kill you. "'All this time you've been on the run from me, there hasn't been anyone chasing you. "'If you had just talked to me, you wouldn't have had to live in fear all this time. "'You don't have the whole story.' To me, that sounded exactly like something a murderer would say, so I stayed tense. "'Then tell me why you're here, then,' I said. "'Well, for starters, it did not take me a month to find you,' she said. "'I basically found you by the time you were saying, "'And don't come find me on your podcast.' "'You did a bad job of covering your tracks, "'almost like you couldn't decide whether or not you wanted to be found. "'Maybe you thought it was inevitable. "'Maybe you felt guilty and self-destructive after killing Matt. "'I don't know.' But it was trivial to find you and plan a visit. You might work for a top-secret facility, but you yourself are not top-secret. It was trivial to get you to let me through the gate. My ears perked up. Excuse me? So you don't remember anything at all, then? Not even meeting me at the front gate? She asked. I have no clue what you're talking about, I said. I know, she said. I'm just trying to lay the story out for you. I could skip to the consequences, but I want to make sure that you know everything that I know by the end of this, and you'll have a lot of questions if I don't tell the whole story. It was one of your first days on the job. You were still getting the hang of things and meeting everybody in the valley. You told me about Hunter and Marissa, I think her name was? Once I got your guard down, I mean. You even let me inside the gate. You told me that you thought you would be safer inside than outside, funnily enough. I wonder what made you choose the opposite this time if you don't remember that time. They wouldn't let me have a weapon in there but they'll let me have whatever i want in this crappy restaurant you seemed resigned you told me that the jig was up and that you just wanted whatever was happening to happen already you had just been mauled by a bear and you hadn't fully recovered yet and i think the pain was getting to you and probably the painkillers too you showed me your back i didn't think it would freak me out but i did the second challenge too i have to think about that anytime i see raw flesh like that i can't watch good horror movies anymore John Carpenter is off the table. We talked for hours in your cabin. You told me about your new friends and about killing Matt. You told me about the real bear and the guy Marissa thought was a bear. We talked about the Wobegon prize paradox and how it made everything you did seem futile. The tone of the conversation vacillated between graphic and sad and funny so quickly. I think that combination is what you do so well, Mike. You made me laugh five minutes before you handed me your service weapon and I shot you in the head. Record scratch sound effect. Do what now? I killed you, Mike. I completed the fourth challenge, Anne said. And you're sure that you actually did this? I asked. Stupid question. She nodded. I shot you in the head in your cabin, calmly walked out of Old Brush Valley, got in my car, and drove home, she said. And yet I am living, I replied. I've noticed, she said. I knew that you were alive again when the podcast feed updated. You told me that you hadn't even started recording episode 15 yet. The last joke you ever told me was, well, at least I don't have to edit the breaths out of that episode now. I don't want to think about what this means, I said. God damn it. Could it mean anything else? She asked. Not that I can think of, I said. You're somebody's prize, Mike, but you're not my prize anymore, Anne said. I don't like the implications of that, I said. It should buy you some time, at least. I was at the end of my rope. You knew it, I knew it. That's why you let me kill you in the first place. You didn't see any other way out except to trust me to figure out how to bring you back later. But when it was you, I knew it was you, I said. I have no idea who could have done it this time. It could be someone that knew about Wobegon and knew that I was playing, or it could be someone that was sad that I died and stumbled on the game that way. It could even be someone that was upset that there wasn't going to be a new episode of the podcast. They could be prepared to go the distance with it, or they could back out at challenge two and erase me all over again. And of course there's what happens when they get to challenge four. God damn it. If someone cared enough to use this dangerous technology to bring you back to life, "'Why would they not tell you that they had done so?' she asked. "'Maybe so that I'm not constantly looking over my shoulder for them. "'Maybe so I never see them coming when it's time to complete the fourth challenge. "'Maybe they saw that I've already died twice playing Wobegon, "'and they assume that I'll be easy to kill when the fourth challenge comes. "'None of it looks very good for me,' I said. "'There's no one you suspect?' she asked. "'Who? Could it even be?' "'Matt's dead. It can't be you.' Cannonball and Ryan wouldn't do it because that's not what they're interested in, I said. Well, Over is a hotbed of woebegone activity, right? She said. At least that's why you think they put you there. Is there anybody you've met that could be a culprit? I haven't even met that many people, unfortunately. Over does a good job of spreading everyone out. I think this is on purpose to keep too many people from coming together and piecing too much of the puzzle together. Chance and Shadow, no way. Their dispositions are too well-adjusted, honestly, to get involved in Wobegon, unless I've radically misjudged them. They wouldn't bring me back because they miss me. They do the adult thing and mourn me and move on, I said. And the others, she asked? Well, Marissa was being strange about the bear from the moment that I met her, and then she shot a guy under the auspices that she thought that he was a bear. That could have all been a fabrication, I guess— So she could be playing Wobegon, but if she is, I couldn't be her prize because she shot the bear before you completed your fourth challenge. If that was part of the game, that means she was already playing. That guy could have been her fourth challenge, I said. And Hunter, she asked. Hunter. (laughs) So nice and so strange. It's like there's two of him sometimes, which does seem like Wobegonery. There could really be two of him. That would explain why he remembers some things, and other times, it's like I never said those things to him. It explains a lot of other contradictory behavior as well. He had a key to a locked drawer in a red flag cabin, even though that seemed way above his pay grade. But if he's up to something, it's not playing Wobegon. If it's two of him, that means that he's above playing Wobegon, because that means that he himself is going back in time. Or forward, maybe. He could be Flinch. He could be a game runner, this could be a weird series of coincidences, but he isn't playing the same game I am. Him starting the game after I died also doesn't explain his suspicious behavior from before I died. You don't think that his unique mental situation could explain all of that too? Anne asked. I'd like to say that I stopped the whole conversation and gave an impassioned diatribe about how we as human beings aren't totalized by our own worst moments or lopsided chemistry in our brains. How it's both cruel and reductive to attribute to mental illness what can easily be explained by separate motivations. How this assumption both damages the person in question and ruins our ability to accurately predict and understand them. But we're trying to piece together the time travel game, not suss out the emotional resonance of Hunter Jeremiah Hartley, so I just said, Nah. Those are all the people that I've gotten a read on so far, I said. There could be someone else watching me, toying with me, flinch even, but if they are, they're doing it without making much contact with me. Someone disappeared the bear that wasn't the game runners, but no one's reached out to me in a way that indicates that they're playing the game, or are involved in it in any way. Keeping that sort of thing under wraps does seem in character for over, though. If not a player, it's possible that whoever did this, along with whoever disappeared the bear and whatever happened that night at Matt's house, Whoever did this might have never spoken to me or seen me in person. Wobegun well, has some sort of extremely advanced surveillance technology within it as well. I think it's part of how they manage to undo the events, by having an incredibly intricate knowledge of the causality of those events in the first place and then working on reversing it. It's difficult to tell when they're watching and when they aren't, but if they have access to me via the tech, then they can bring me back to life, or death if they wanted to, without my knowledge or consent any time that they feel like it. "'I know that's a lot of words that could have just been a shrug,' I said. "'The worst part of putting all this together "'isn't that the threads don't connect up to make a clear and logical story. "'That's true of any story if you dig deep enough into it,' Anne said. "'The real problem is that there doesn't seem to need to be "'an objective set of events that are linear through time. "'If they can change the past, then the order of things doesn't matter. "'And we don't know everyone who can change the past or what they want,' I added. "'The biscuits and gravy were long finished.' Anne and I sat there with just our coffees, with the staff side-eyeing us for taking up a booth for so long without ordering more food. I would definitely be giving a larger tip than normal, out of guilt. So if you finish the fourth challenge, what are you doing now? Are you coming to work at Over? I asked. No, they have different plans for me. I've put in an application doing a different job at a different classified facility, she said. That's too bad, I said. Not only because it would have been nice to have a confidant inside of Old Brush Valley, but also if there's another facility that they're sending people to, it might mean that Flinch isn't here. Or there could be multiple computers. But getting to the bottom of this won't be as easy as figuring out what lies at the dark core of Old Brush Valley. I think if it were that easy, then someone smarter than you would have figured it out already. And joked. I think it was a joke. Hey, I get to say that on my podcast, but you don't, I said. If you include it, it will be you saying it. Anne said. Damn. Maybe I am dumb. Serious talk devolved into small talk, and then we went our separate ways. I offered to let Anne inside the gate, but she said that she had other stuff to attend to. It was a long drive home for her. I'm always in awe of her willingness to travel a huge distance in order to talk to me, or in order to convince me to let her shoot me in the head under the assumption that she would do her best to reverse it as soon as she got the chance. I checked Matt's social media pages to make sure that he was still dead. He still was. I knew that he would be, but I owed it to the more sentimental part of myself to check. There were just too many variables. Anne and I thought out a ton of different possible explanations, but I could sit and speculate all day at what might have happened. People in the future being able to influence events in the past creates a literally infinite number of possibilities that hinge on things that may or may not have even happened yet. Like, what if Taylor Yarmouth did it? Who is Taylor Yarmouth? No one! I made him up! But there's some chance that someone named Taylor Yarmouth enters the picture at some point in the future and decides to save me in the past based on… something… and brings me back. It could be Taylor Yarmouth, it could be Gretchen Stevensbrecher, it could be any completely fabricated reality that my brain could come up with. The only people who I don't think could be responsible are the ones that I have detailed as being engaged with the Wobegon story in the present. In the present being the operative term. So it could be anyone, even Taylor Yarmouth. Every time I learn a new piece of information, I realize that the pool of information about Wobegon is so much larger than I thought it was. Every time I learn something, it actually decreases how much I think that I know about what's going on. It's funny, I should be relieved that Anne's fourth challenge ended in a way that didn't result in my permanent death, but that relief got overshadowed by the sheer amounts of questions that it raised by happening. The ticking clock got wound backwards, but it's impossible to say how far. And also now, the clock is ticking even louder, and the clock has the face of my father, and he keeps saying how disappointed he is that I didn't become a scientist. I've had this nightmare so many times before. I mean, I know we all have. Aside from hoping that the game runners provide me with tasks that elucidate what's going on in Old Brush Valley, I think my best path forward is to figure out what's going on with Hunter and Marissa. Hunter in particular gives me pause. His kind, almost dopey demeanor makes it such that it's easy to trust him, and difficult to accuse him of subterfuge. Which might be exactly what he's going for. I know that my misadventures would be more successful if I could just learn to play it cool and be amicable around people instead of being a bratty cynic all the time. Marissa's a different story. I don't know that I suspect her of being involved with this specifically, but it does feel like something's up. I didn't point this out last episode because I didn't want to accuse her of anything, but a human being and a bear look quite different from each other. Even an overweight, fully grown man does not at all compare in size to a bear. I know that she has the veil of night that she can point to as evidence, and I'm sure that you can find any number of news articles where this misidentification has happened before, but she was a lot closer than I was, and I can't help but wonder if she saw a person. And if she saw a person, why she still shot and acted as though she had seen a bear. Oh, by the way, I completed the walk that I was tasked with in the previous episode. It felt uniquely peaceful. Based on what Anne told me, it must have been the day after she killed me, because that was the day that I edited the breaths out of episode 15. The air was crisp, but not cold, and there was nobody out there that night, bears and people who ostensibly look like bears included. It was quiet and reflective, something that I really needed after the attack. I have misophonia, which is a processing disorder that makes hearing mouth sounds mentally and sometimes physically painful for me. I don't have it as bad as a lot of people do, but editing mouth sounds out of the podcast is a mentally taxing task for me that takes all day if I take a sufficient amount of breaks to protect my sanity. The walk was the perfect way to decompress, even if I didn't know that I had recently returned to this mortal coil. Touching the doorknob to the red flag cabin without having to go in felt freeing. I got to check something off the Wobegon task list without having to put myself in danger. I hope that got me one step closer, even if I don't know how it could get me there. This has been Wobegon. Next time, Wobegon continues. There are no brakes on this thing, and I wouldn't pump the brakes now, even if there were. Thanks for playing.